Good morning again, friends. Um, today, I do realize it's not Christmas yet, uh, but since we just got done in our series through, through the book of Acts, we have this one weird Sunday today, I guess, before Christmas Sunday uh, next week, where we'll talk about uh, Jesus' birth and really emphasize on that. But for this Sunday, for this one Sunday in between, I thought it'd be good for us to take it and preach on a passage that kind of introduces the story of Jesus' birth, right? The, the introduction opening story, and that would be the genealogy that you see in the beginning of Matthew chapter one. Okay, those list of long names of people, it's kind of like an intro and opening to the birth narrative of, of Jesus. And it also happens to be a part of the Bible that a lot of people skip, right? Because it's just, it's just a list of names. You just kind of skim through it, even skip it all together. It's an opening scene, people think, before the real story then begins. But here's the thing about good stories. The opening scene actually oftentimes contain within it the essence of the whole story. What do I mean? Well, a lot of you know that I have a six-year-old daughter Right, So a lot of you also know I've watched the movie Frozen about 3,500 times. It's just one of the joys of parenting, right? She wants to watch it over and over again. And let me ask you, if you've seen the movie, which I assume most of you have, I'm talking about Frozen 1 here, what would you say was the essence of that story? What was like the main point of that story? Well, in a nutshell, it's about how true love can break down and melt what? A frozen heart, right? That's the main point of it. At the end of the story, Anna's heart, is it, de- is it dead? Can you hear me? Okay, I'm like insecure now, okay. <laughs> uh, at the end of the story, Anna, the younger sister, right? Uh, her body and her heart froze to ice cold because of a cold curse from an evil ex-boyfriend, pretty much. And Elsa's love broke and chipped away at the ice, melting her back into life. True love can chip away and melt frozen hearts. That's the point. Now, you think about it. What's the opening scene of that movie? You guys remember it? Most of you probably don't because you haven't watched it 3,500 times. But I do because I have. The opening scene was a bunch of what? Ice harvesters doing what? Breaking down and chipping away at frozen ice. As they sung, strike for love and strike for fear, see the beauty sharp and sheer, split the ice apart and break the frozen heart. Beware of the frozen heart. The opening scene of Frozen, of frozen 1 is actually a compact summary of the whole story. And if you want to see my whole movie review, you can visit www.tazarmoviereview.com. <laughs> it's there. Similarly, okay, the opening scene of the book of Matthew here, which is this genealogy, in many ways is a compact summary of the whole Christmas story, of the whole Christian story, really. And I'm sure you've heard of it plenty of times, but I'm hoping that seeing it here again, perhaps told in a different way, through a different kind of literary structure, perhaps may even give us a new appreciation for it and hopefully even an increased sense of awe 
okay? All right, let's, let's get into it. This is the opening scene of, gospel, uh, of, the, of Matthew's gospel, chapter one, verse one to 17. This is the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was a father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. A little more. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus says the Lord. A lot of names. What's the story? Well, three things. Three claims about the Christian story that I want to open up today, packed in this opening list of names. What about the Christian story? One, it's real. Two, it's hopeful. And three, it demands a response. It's real, it's hopeful and it demands a response. Let's go to our first point. It's real. That's the claim here. Where? Well, we today, we don't use genealogies quite the same way that people back then did. Today, for example, you go to like ancestry.com, right? And you type in your name and all the information, and then you find out, huh, I'm 2% Samoan. That's nice, you know? It's, it's a fun thing to do. But back then, genealogies meant a whole lot more. One use of genealogies back then was to communicate the quality of a person. Okay, who your ancestors were, were very connected deeply to your own identity as a person. So if you take a look at Jesus here, for example, he had quite the list of names in his genealogy, right? Especially in verse 1, take a look at it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. It's like, man, you really came out swinging with the big names there, Matthew. You know, David, the penultimate king of Israel, and, and Abraham, the guy who God used to kind of start it all. Now, now, why did Matthew choose to start with those two people? Because Matthew here is trying to remind us, the readers, of who Jesus' true identity is. Remember, Matthew's saying here, the promised king, 
the promised king that the Old Testament keeps talking about. Okay, who's the one that will come through the line of David? Who's the one that's finally going to rule and redeem all of God's people? It's this kid. That's what he's saying. It's this baby who's laying in this manger. He's the true king, born a child, yet a king, our song said earlier. He's the true and better David. But he's not only the true king, he's also, in fact, the true beginning, the true and better Abraham. Okay, so he's the true king and also the true beginning. Now, how does that tell you who Jesus is? Well, who is, friends, the king of kings? Who's also the beginning of all beginnings, right? Here's the big claim that, that Matthew's trying to make here, that this child is none other than God himself. And I realize that's a big, audacious claim to make. But that's what he's trying to make by this genealogy. He's come to us, the king of kings, the true beginning. He's here in the form of this child. But here's also another important use of genealogies back then. Not only was it used to communicate the actual exist, uh, the, the worthiness of a person, it was also used to communicate the reality of a person, the actual existedness of a person. Like, this is a real person. He wasn't just a legend, you know, like, like Zeus who suddenly came down from Olympus or something. This, this child had actual parents and grandparents and, and great-grandparents. Like you, could, you could trace it back. Historically, this is a real person. That, that's also how they would use genealogies back then. And this, this detail is an irreplaceable part of the, Christian, of the Christian story. Why? Because, friends, this isn't good news unless it actually happened. A few years back, there was this missionary slash Bible translator who worked for the Wycliffe Bible Translators. You guys probably heard of them. And she spent almost 10 years of her life translating the whole New Testament, okay, to this one tribe. I forget what it was, but it was this tribe that had no Bible translation in their language yet. But since she thought it was like an urgent task, you know, they don't have a Bible. I've got to get the Bible to these people as quickly as possible. What she did is that she decided to skip some of the parts of the Bible that she thought weren't as crucial to the main storyline, okay? So she kind of cut a few parts, including the genealogy that we, we just read today, that we're studying today. She cut that part off. Let's just get the main meat, you know, and, and give it to him. So after many years, she finally completed, printed, boxed up, flew down the Bibles, put it into a huge truck where it was, down, it was then driven down to the people in this tribe. But to her surprise, and also to her disappointment, the people in that tribe didn't really care about the Bible at all. I mean, they, they, they read it, but they weren't interested. She said they were actually more interested in the truck that brought the Bible down rather than the Bibles themselves. They were like, what is this thing, you know? And she was disappointed. But she was already almost done with all translations, so she thought, you know what? I'm just going to knock it out. I'm just going to get it done, okay? So she translated the whole, the whole New Testament, and she said, look, it's, whole, it's all done, and she gave it to the tribe, the completed version. And then when the, tri when the tribe chief read, again, the New Testament, but this time the complete New Testament, beginning with this genealogy in it, his response was totally different. He said this, hold on. Are you trying to tell me that this Jesus guy you've been telling us about for the past 10 years was actually a real person? And she was like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's the whole point. And he responded, see, I thought you were telling us about some mythical character. 
because there's no genealogy. And I quote from Sinclair Ferguson's book that told this story. It says that once the chief understood that this Christ was real in space and time, the chief came to Christ, and shortly after that, the majority of the whole tribe. Friends, this, this isn't a rebuke. I promise. It's more of a curious inquiry. But I do wonder if, if the reason, perhaps, why so many of us come to church every December during Christmas, the Christmas season, and we hear this story about the birth of Jesus, about how love came down over and over and over again. But then we forget all about it until the following December where we then come back to church and we hear the story over and over and over again. I wonder, that's because deep inside, hidden in the crevices of our consciousness or subconsciousness like the village chief, we still believe that the story we're hearing about today is just a legend. Like it's a nice story about love and and forgiveness and, and kindness, and it is. But what Matthew's trying to say here is that through this genealogy, it is if that, that's what you think Christianity is about, if, if that's what you think Christmas is about, a nice old tale about love and forgiveness and kindness, then you really haven't understood it at all. Not at all. By including this genealogy, Matthew's making a much more audacious claim. He's saying that the story isn't just a story about love and forgiveness and kindness. It's a story about how the source of love and forgiveness and kindness himself physically showed up in our world. It's a true story about how the king of the universe, the beginning of all things, punched a hole through space and time somehow and physically appeared in our story. It's like if Shakespeare were to write himself into one of his plays, God wrote himself in. That's the claim here from this genealogy. And if that's what you believe this story is about, then how do you ignore something like that till next December? How do you just like brush it aside? How does it not take the full attention of your heart and soul? He came. He's here. We can't ignore it. We can't. And the only reason why we do is because maybe there's still a part of us that thinks it's a legend. Matthew is saying, no, no, no. It really happened. And it, because it really happened, we have real hope. Which brings us to our second point. The Christian story is real. That's the claim being made here. And it's hopeful. Now, something interesting about this genealogy is that as we've seen, yes, it includes a lot of important Old Testament people, okay? But it also included a lot of lowly people as well. It actually included some pretty bad sinners who, first of all, you got Rahab in verse 5. Remember who she was? A prostitute. And then you have Tamar in verse 3, who enticed her father-in-law to sleep with her. It's pretty bad. And then shockingly in verse 6, Matthew even aired out David's dirty laundry. David, the King David, look at what he said. Look at verse 6. David was a father of Solomon by who? 
by the wife of Uriah. It's like, wait, what? David fathered a child by somebody else's wife? <laughs> yeah. Remember the story? He got who pregnant? Bathsheba. Bathsheba was who? The wife of Uriah. David committed adultery. King David. And also, he killed Uriah, the true husband of Bathsheba, in a war while he was fighting a war for him. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was a thief. But Matthew's not done. He then continues to mention other kings after David in verses 7 to 10, who were also pretty bad kings themselves. Rehoboam, bad. Abijah, bad. Manasseh, repented at the end, but in the middle there, he has some pretty dark moments. Solomon, you can go either way, right? He's really wise, but also a womanizer. So there you have it. And to top it off, in verse 11, Matthew reminded the people of Israel of their deportation to Babylon. That's how verse 11 ends. And if you remember, why Israel was exiled to Babylon, the Old Testament, why was it? It was because they were stubborn in their sin. It was their punishment. So Matthew's airing out all this dirty laundry, and the readers at this point are meant to go, man, God, like you really chose to write yourself into the story, into our world, through this storyline? Through this morally filthy, messy bunch? And the answer is, yes, he did. <laughs> and it's like, why? Why them? Why not just choose a more morally upright family line? You know, why these people? They're a mess. Well, friends, because there's another really important truth here being communicated by the Christian story. Not only that it's real, but it's hopeful. It's hopeful because God seems to be really, really faithful to his promise. Since day one, he's saying here, since day one, Every single one of my people have messed up royally, even the best ones, even the ones who are supposed to be kings. You have no idea how many countless idols I've endured, God's saying. You have no idea how patient I've been through countless sins and mistakes. I've long suffered with murderers, sex addicts, liars, manipulators, thieves, rebels. I have sat back through thousands of years of pride, horrible character, poutiness, complaining, lack of thankfulness. I've been forgotten by my people, replaced by false gods over and over and over again for whole millennia. And I'm still here. I'm still here. Look at this genealogy. I stuck around. But you think that your sins and mistakes this past few years is the one that's finally going to break me? <laughs> After all I've endured, God's saying, you think that your mess is the one that's finally going to push me away. Oh, how small, how puny must you think of me? My faithfulness to my people is beyond 
your wildest dreams. Look at the people in this list. I'm still here. And that's why, friends, we have hope. We have hope even in the lowest point of our stories. You know, it's interesting here also as the genealogy goes on from verses 12 onwards, the names of the people listed here started to become less and less known, right? It started off strong with David and Abraham and Solomon and, and, and kings and princes. And then it went on, verses 12 onwards, to Shealtiel. It's like, who's that? Akim. It's like, was that a sneeze? The, who's Akim? <laughs> Eliad? Who were these people? And finally, at the end of the line, we arrive at Joseph and Mary in verse 16. Joseph and Mary, they're not kings and queens. They're not even well-known prophets or military generals. Who are they? They were a broke, young married couple who's barely making it, who can't even deliver a baby at a proper place. And God, this is when you choose to write yourself in the story? This is the point of the story? It's like, what? See, he could have written himself in back then when David was still mighty king, when Israel was still at the strongest, when Solomon was still enchanting the whole world with his splendor. But yet he appeared at the lowest point of the story when the timeline reached a broke young couple <laughs> scrapping by to make it. That's precisely when he came. Listen, there's hope even now, he has stuck by us through countless failed kings, through countless failed institutions, through countless failed nations. He is stuck by us, and he still came at the lowest point. And he did so in such a way that demands a response, which brings us to our last point. In this genealogy, we see that the Christian story is real, it's hopeful, and it demands a response. See, in, in stories like this, when the hero comes to the rescue right at the last minute, we'd expect them to come how? On top of a horse with a sword slashing through the bad guys, right? That's kind of the image we expect. But here, here's the complicated part about the Christian story. As we've just seen, friends, the people that the hero is trying to save here are the bad guys. Well, how do you work that problem out? They're the murderers. They're the liars. They're the thieves. They're the adulterers. Even the main good guys, like David, are the bad guys. Abraham, remember? He tried to sell his wife to an Egyptian king to save his own life. That's horrifying. So what's the hero supposed to do? You know, what would you do? You can't just come in and swing the sword because you're trying to save your people that end up, turn out to be the bad guys. Well, if you do that, you're just going to end up killing your own people. So what did he do? Well, this was his solution. He came in, not with a sword. He came in instead with a payment, with a ransom. He came in with a sacrificial offering that'll cancel the debt that his people owe because of their sins. Now, we think, what payment? What payment could possibly be precious enough 
to atone for thousands of years of sin done to an eternal God. I mean, how much gold and silver are we talking here? Well, that's why he didn't come with gold and silver. He came offering something much more precious. Take a look at verse 16. It's interesting. To describe the birth of Jesus, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. You notice something interesting there? Joseph wasn't called the father of Jesus. See, everyone else up to this point was called the father of, the father of, the father of, whoever comes next, right? Abraham, the father of Isaac. Hezron, the father of Ram. Boaz, the father of, I forget the name here, someone's father. But then you get to Joseph in verse 16, and it says what? Joseph, not the father of Jesus, Joseph, what? The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Why? Another audacious claim to remind us that this is no ordinary child. He's fully human, yes. He's truly flesh and bone. He biologically developed in a woman's womb. The son of Mary. But unlike other babies, his flesh and bone were not a result of natural conception. That's the claim being made here through this literary progression. His flesh and bone was a result of God's act of self-humiliation. Not natural conception. His flesh and bone was because God, even after all that we've done, decided to stoop down and write himself into our story by putting on flesh and blood, Philippians chapter 2 says, and to be born as one of us. Why? Because that is the only thing this hero could do to save his people. The only thing precious enough to wash away our sins against an eternal God is nothing other than the life of this eternal God himself. Anything else would be unjust, insufficient. You know, as a parent, I, I have my limits, right? Hopefully you don't see those limits up here while I'm handling my kids. But when my kids, they're in one of their bad spells, they're whiny, they're throwing tantrums, they're just failing in life, <laughs> you know? Usually I start off very Christianly, I go, oh, dear Liam, I see you're having a hard time. Tell me, what is the cause of your plight? You know, very controlled. But then after 20 minutes, if he doesn't change his attitude, I turn into the Hulk, right? I, I can forbear my children's sin, but I have, I have limits, and they're not very long limits. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul said, do you know why God was able to forbear with his people for so long? I mean, look at the sins represented in this genealogy. How was he able to endure for so long? And it's not because he had no wrath. Oh, he has wrath. But it's because all of his wrath was poured out upon whom? Himself. He didn't come swinging a sword. He came down offering up a body as payment for your sins and for my sins.
That's the, that's the Christmas story. And if friends, if you leave here today thinking, oh my, what a good story. What a nice story about love and forgiveness. There's so many good lessons I can learn. Well, then most likely the soonest I'll see you is next December. But if you see what Matthew's claiming here with this genealogy, that this really did happen, you know what it'll do? It'll no longer just be a good story told. It's going to turn into an amazing gift offered because it actually happened. And the difference between a story and an offer is that we can ignore stories, but we can't ignore offers. What do you mean? Of course we can. I ignore offers all the time. Well, yeah. But when it comes to an offer, ignorance is a response. You see? If someone comes to me and says, look, I'm offering you the deal of your life, and I just keep walking and ignore them, that's not ignorance. You know what that is? That's rejection. It's impossible to ignore an offer. You either accept it or you reject it. So here's the offer, because it's not a story. Here's the offer being made here by Matthew in this genealogy and also by the rest of the Bible that God is presenting to you that night inside of that manger. He's offering you his life. He's offering you the only payment sufficient to pay for all of the sins that we've committed by thine own sufficient merit, not mine, not my righteousness, not my good works, not all the good things I've done. Raise us to thy glorious throne. That's the offer. The question is, how will you respond? If you accept it, I most likely will see you sooner than next December because it will change your life. And for those of you here who already said yes to this offer a long time ago or maybe recently, remember, let this be a sweet balm to you that his patience for his people is beyond your wildest dreams. It's in a category of its own. What have you done? You think that's what's going to push God away? He stuck around literally through the sins of his people throughout the whole world's history. <laughs> Is your sin beyond that? He will never leave you. When he says he'll get something done, he'll get it done. He will never leave you. No longer limit the eternal mercies of your God through the lenses of your own mind. But do so as you behold the image of a child who's come to offer up his life as a ransom for his people. Find it there. Then sing unto him and him alone. Be all glory, all honor, all power, and all majesty forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, may this story seen through this genealogy not fall dull on the ears of people here. May they hear when the speakers here fail. May they hear your spirit to the conscience of the silent soul inviting them to come to the source of life, to come to the one who's offered up his very life so that we may live. Rise us, Father, to thy glorious throne, not by our own good deeds, not by our own religiosity, not by the moral points we've collected our whole lives. Raise us by thine own sufficient merit. May we find comfort and peace and strength beyond what this world could offer, knowing that we have an eternal God who stuck around his people unfailingly. And may that lead us to a life radically used to serve you and love others in the same way that you've loved us, sacrificially, even unto a cross. In Jesus' name, we beg you for this mercy.